He's Scotty Kipper. Welcome to the show. This week's guest, he's got a lot of stories. He sure does. He uh, is a member of the Trailer Choir, which is a band that was a part of Toby Keith's record label. Uh, They moved over to Average Joe's, and they're still cooking. He put out a new solo single just recently. He's got a couple of kids now. He was on The Biggest Loser. (laughs) You're going to love this guy. Big Vinny, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I'm a... I'm actually sitting here with my daughter. She's watching uh, Snow White. She's only three months old, but she's interested in it. So there you go. She's already a princess. <laughs> Aww. What's her name? Her name is Harley Marie. Harley Marie. So sweet. See, well, I thought you named her after Harley Quinn, or you named her after uh, Harley Davidson. I'm like, no, I named her after Harley Allen, one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Oh, that's a better story. Very cool. <laughs> Are you a first-time dad? No, that's my second. I got a, I got a three-year-old son as well named Jagger. 2020 has just been so weird to begin with. I mean, how has it been keeping your three-year-old occupied, and now you've got a <laughs> three-month-old? How have you been managing? Well, you know, it's kind of remarkable because at the beginning of it, you know, me and Butter and Trailer Choir and then also my other band, Nashville Cartel, we were set to have probably the best year financially that we had had in a long time. And uh, we had tons of shows and lots of great bookings and, and big shows and uh, that all went out the window. And I got a little bit worried and I was like, man, I was like, I hate to lose it because I, I probably lost uh, 70, 80 grand worth of money with one felt swoop in March, you know, mm-hmm. so... That hurt, but what I gained was a lot of time because I was going to have to be gone a lot. Uh, I gained a lot of time with my wife and my son and my, my newborn daughter, and I think that's the blessing that sometimes we don't think about is, man, we stay going all the time and we're living our passion so it doesn't feel bad uh, when you're going out there and doing it, but you look and you realize you miss a lot of time with your kids. And You know, I've always talked about her and said, look, it's a little different because if I was working a nine-to-five job, I would – be gone most every day. While my, even when my kids were at home, I'd be sitting in traffic on the way to work, sitting in traffic on the way back home. And But I would see my kids every night. Whereas when I'm gone, I might leave for two weeks at a time, but then I might be home for them the whole next month, you know. So it kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, I don't know, it's a catch-22. Luckily for me, I own a bunch of hemp farms across North America. I have my gym in Cool Springs. I work with uh, Southside Strength. You know, we just diversified my wife, and we, we we both write meal plans online for a company called V-Shred. So we have so many different streams of income, and though it still hurt us, obviously, we lost a lot of money. Uh, we were blessed to still be able to have jobs and pay our bills and not have uh, the worries that a lot of my friends have had after losing all their their shows and things like that. Oh, for sure. That would be a huge relief. And I think that's why a lot of musician friends are expanding, doing other things as well. Because, I mean, if you're a touring musician and you can't tour, well, then what? Well, yeah, especially, you know, I mean, like I said, luckily, I also have, you know, had some radio success and and some other cuts and stuff. So I I still make a little bit of residual income through being in mine and other places. But Yes, I mean, it's a whole different ballgame for a lot of my folks, especially my buddies who were just kind of getting here and getting started, and they were playing, you know, two or three shifts a week down on Broadway. I mean, you know, when you think about it, you can go make four or five hundred bucks on some shifts in Broadway, even just doing the acoustic shows if you, you know, if you work the tip bucket right and all that kind of stuff. So you take somebody, if they're playing three shows a week and they're making three to five hundred bucks per pop on those shows, that's a decent little income taken out of your pocket, you know. And these, a lot of these folks, I mean, I've had several that have moved back home. I've had people that had to close their businesses and things like that, and, you know, we try to help out where we can with other friends and family members, and, you know, I think it's what it takes to the world. We have to pull together. We have to love each other. We have to have forgiveness and grace, you know, for one another during this time. I mean, we always need to have those things, but especially now, you know, if somebody owes you money and they can't pay you because they're not working, then give them a little grace. You know, if somebody's renting, you know, if you have a rental home and somebody's renting from you and they've lost their job, you know, Maybe don't kick them out of the house you right. know, just yet. So those are the conversations and stuff we have to have with each other. And that's how we can show kindness and love and, and all those kind of things during this time. Let's rewind and tell the folks who are listening a little bit about who you are. So first of all, you're a member of a band called The Trailer Choir. And that's how you and I met. I opened with yep. a, an act from Canada for you guys in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was one of my favorite gigs ever because I got to watch you guys. And I just I was blown away because at that point we hadn't heard of the trailer choir in Canada yet, but I get down there right. and there's this 400 pound dude break dancing. <laughs> and I was like, holy cow, what is happening right now? 
And then we got to hang out and we sort of half-assed stayed in touch over the years. But uh, but how did the yeah. Trailer Choir come about? What was the sort of genesis story of, of Trailer Choir? Let's start there. Well, there's a lot of different uh, theories out there and stories out there. If you read online, allegedly Toby Keith put us together from a casting agency and all these other things. But what really happened was I, I actually happened to rent, um, if you remember the old Fireside building, which is where Dolly and Porter Wagner's studio was at, I rented um, an office in there for songwriting, and I, I bought a bunch of studio equipment. And I had no clue how any of it worked. So one night, this is literally, this is the God's honest truth. One night I'm laying there because I, I lived about three hours away at the time. I was laying there because I had written songs all day, and I was just going to get up and drive in the morning. So I was sleeping on my couch. And I hear the side door to my office open. Now it was connected. It was like a suite, so it was connected to the the neighboring office in the middle of the of the room. And I hear my door open. And I hear my refrigerator getting slid out, and I'm like, "What the crap?" So I get up. And I was of laying there. And I was pretty much laying there and nothing. So I jumped up and I threw on my overalls, and I come walking around the corner, and I see this tiny little human walking with a, a Diet Coke that he got out of my refrigerator and a big old handful of peanut m and <laughs> That ended up being butter. Get out of town. So he, he looked at me and he goes, oh, am I, am I in the wrong office? Where, <laughs> wait, is this your office or my office? I'm like, what are you doing, dude? He's like, uh, he, he said, let me be honest with you. He goes, I ain't hardly got no food or nothing in my, in my, in my fridge. I'm down to my last dollar, but I got, I got some good stuff happening and Blah, 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 And I was like, dude, all you had to do was knock on the door and you could have anything you want in this office. And uh, we sat down and we talked that night and we uh, we became friends. Well, he invited me out to see the Butter the butter and Sugar Show uh, at the Bunganut Pig. And so I went out there. <laughs> and while I was out there, I, I come from a town where you, I mean, you, there's music playing, you dance, you square dance, sure. you, you flat foot, all that kind of stuff. So he was playing and uh, I just sort of got up and started dancing and flat footing and stuff and he said, man, come up on stage and do that. So I went up on stage and done that. Uh, and he was like, man, he goes, I think you need to be at every show. And so I started just going to the shows to see the Butter and Sugar show. Well, Shug ended up getting on Nashville Star, and uh, he made like the top 20 or something like that. But during that time, he decided he wanted to be a solo artist. So Butter said, hey, man, I got an idea. I got this fiddle player. He's 17 years old. He weighed about 300 pounds. He goes, and then I thought about you. He said, what if we put a band together. We call it the Trailer Trash Choir. <laughs> and I said, well, I love the name. And then uh, we got to thinking about it. And we're like, well, let's just be the Trailer Choir. So we ended up taking the name of that. Originally, I was going to wear uh, my overalls, but under my overalls, I was going to wear a choir robe. And I was going to direct. We had three girls. <laughs> I love it. No, no, no joke. We had three girls uh, that were going to sing with us in the choir. G-Ray was going to play a fiddle. Of course, Butter was going to be the lead singer, and I was going to be the, the hype man. Yeah. Well, uh, G-Ray ended up quitting because he wanted to do his own thing. He was a phenomenal fiddle player, and he was only 17. So he quit, and it left me and Butter. Then one night, we were playing at the Billy Block Show in Nashville, Tennessee, and we had hired a girl named Jules Hansen, who we wrote one of our songs with, to be the backup singer. And that night, Toby Keith happened to walk in at the Billy Block Show and saw us playing. He was like, man, I love what y'all did. Y'all come out and hang out with me. So we went and hung out with him all night and everything, and he's like, yeah, I think I might want to sign you out a record deal. Of course, we're on cloud nine. That was in uh, December of 2006. Come February of 2007, we get a call from T.K. Kimbrough. It says, hey, uh, Toby wants to know if y'all have any shows going on during CRS. And I was like, uh, yeah, we're playing that 12th and Porter. He goes, cool. Well, rope him off of a section. We're going to come and we're going to bring about 10 people with us. We want to watch y'all play. I was like, heck yeah. So we're at 12th and Porter. We give them the whole upper level at 12th and Porter. And we told all of our friends, hey, come out, make signs, be loud, all this good stuff. And uh, they all did. They all come support us. We probably had 350 people packed in that tiny little room. <laughs> yeah, no, literally, we got, they, they had to start turning people away at the door. I mean, we, we went out of our way. We got every friend. We told everybody, look, Toby Keith is coming to see us play tonight. Well, Toby Keith didn't show up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we look like idiots, you know. So we're all down and everything. About that time, my phone rings, and uh, it's Toby. And, of course, it was a, 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 it was a, it was a block call or a, uh, you yeah. know, one of those that shows up as nobody. But uh, I answered it. He said, hey, is this uh, Big Vinny? And I said, yeah. He said, it's Toby. I said, I said oh, man, I said, I was hoping you was going to come tonight. You didn't show up. He goes, well, listen, Hoss. He's like, get you, get you, get your band to come down here to Printer's Alley. You know where it's at? And I said, yes, sir. He said, 
come on down to Fiddle and Steel. He's like, y'all going to put on the show here. So I told everybody, I said, listen, we're going to Fiddle and Steel right now. So we went down to Fiddle and Steel. He put us on stage with a whole other band's guitars, a whole other band's setup, and we played three songs, and it was for all the CRS crowd. And it was Montgomery Gentry and Evelyn McCain and I can't remember. There was several other big acts there. And uh, we got done playing our, our three songs, and we got encored. And Butter said, nah, let's not do the encore. And so we walked off stage, <laughs> and everybody was just screaming for us to come back. And these are no, no, we didn't know any of these people. So we get back there to Toby, and he goes, well, he goes, I guess I'm going to sign you out a record deal. Woo. He said, the reason I did this is because I wanted to see how y'all perform under pressure. He goes, and I wanted to see what it was like to see y'all with a crowd that wasn't your crowd. He said, and I guess they all loved you. So, um, so he's smart. He's a smart dude, you know. So we literally got the record deal, and it took about, you know, six months, seven months back and forth. That was in February, so I think we got we signed the deal June 19th. We signed the deal on June 19th, June 21st, 2007. We played our first show on the Toby Tour, uh, on the Big Dog Daddy Tour uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. It was us. Plenville Train, Miranda Lambert, and Toby Keith. That's something else, That's man. a wild story. That's actually, you know, with, with how uh, Toby was kind of testing you there, that's um, intense. <laughs> <laughs> so he doesn't show up, and then you got to play your show, and then he calls. So yeah. you, you pick up the phone, and it's it's Toby. What's going through your head yeah. at that moment? Why didn't you show up? <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I, I was sitting there thinking, I, I was sitting there like, you, you made me look like an idiot to everybody I know, you know. Good um, for you. But, you know, but then as, as you go through it, I mean, you see that guy is a genius. I mean, he really is. He's, you know, I know he's kind of known as like Mr. America and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But honestly, I mean, he is, when it comes to business, there's not a person in the music business smarter than him, uh, at least not in country. I mean, He's made more money than everybody. He's done it in less time than everybody, you know. I mean, from when his real success started. I mean, he had like three or four number ones before he started getting big. He wrote, of course, he wrote Should Have Been a Cowboy by himself and owns all the publishing on it. So that song alone's probably made him more money than I'll ever make in music. But, right, right. But just everything from his his oil companies, you know, his not just oil, but he does wind and solar and everything. I mean, he has all kinds of energy companies and hotels and bars and casinos and just all the stuff that he does. He's just, he's just smart. How do you he like knew, me now, uh, right? He saw, how do you like me now? I see what you did <laughs> you know, he, he also, you know, I, I can tell you this. I was sitting on the bus with him one night when we were out on tour, and he's like talking to me. He's like, man, I've done everything. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I've done everything. I've been everywhere. I've seen everything. I've done everything. He said, the only thing I really care about, he goes, I love getting on stage and playing music. He goes, hey, I, he goes what am I going to do with more money? He's like, i got plenty of money. I got everything. I have everything I got paid off, you know. <laughs> he said, so his biggest thing now is he wanted to see somebody else succeed and know that he had a, a help in that. He wanted to see uh, his kids, you know, grow up and live their dreams and be happy and stuff like that. And that was kind of what his dreams were now. But he always loved to play, you know. And it was funny, we were on, so it was the third year of touring with Toby whenever Trace Atkins came out with us. And Trace went through a pretty rough deal with uh, EMI, whenever Universal EMI, the whole merger was happening, and yep. um, and Capital and the whole thing was going on, and they basically they owed him like a million dollars, and they just the new people came in and said we're just not going to accept the record, and you can just be off the label because we're not giving you the million dollars. And he was pretty upset about it, and we're sitting there uh, at lunch one day on the Toby tour, and he was he was pretty pissed off, and I would be too. Somebody just took a million dollars out of my pocket, but he was like, man, I don't know what to do. He goes, part of me just says, well, screw it, and you know just don't worry about the million dollars. The other part of me is, you know, wants to kind of give them the bird, you know? And Toby, Toby looked at him. He said, he's like, you pick your own songs, you make your own record, you do your own thing. He's like, we'll put the radio team on it and we'll do, we'll do everything we can do to help you. But you're responsible for your own career. He's like, I'm not going to make you sign re-record clauses. I'm not going to make you, you know, give me 25% of everything you make. He goes, you know, you just come be you do your thing. Hmm. And uh, literally right there, I watched it. They shook hands, and sure thing, next thing you know, they're coming out and saying, hey, uh, Trace Atkins is signing over here. And the way the conversation started was Trace was, like, talking to Toby. He said, man, how do you do it? How do you stay so excited about playing shows every single night? And he said, well, he said, in 2000, or I guess in 99 is when he decided, because I just decided I was going to be me no matter what. 
is like when you can make that decision and you can go out there every night and sing the songs you want to sing and put on the show you want to put on and not have to answer to anybody. They said, now look, you have to live with that decision. You, have to, you know, if that decision hurts you, you got to live with it. If that decision makes you bigger, you got to live with it. He's like, but as long as you're being yourself, he goes, I'm just excited. He goes, I love playing shows every single night. He goes, I love watching the reaction. I love being with my band. I love with the crowd. At that point, he was at a point where he would literally play Friday night, get on a helicopter, fly through the airport to get on his plane to fly home to coach his son's junior pro football game Saturday morning. And he would get back on the plane after coaching the football game and fly back to the next show, to the next show the next night on Saturday night. So <laughs> I guess when you have your own plane, you can do that. Right? That boggles the mind, doesn't it? So do you yeah. find that the singles that you did release to radio were exactly what you guys wanted to put out and that it was 100% supported by Toby? Yeah, as far as what we recorded, uh, we didn't get to choose the order of what came out to radio sure. when. Uh, but as far as the, all the songs we, that we recorded are ones we personally picked or we personally wrote. I think there was only two, two songs on the record that we didn't write. And uh, that was Homemade Mexico, which Lee Barras wrote. He's our good buddy, you know. And then the other one was written by Bobby Pinson, who was actually the one that got Toby to come see us. Bobby Pinson loved us and used to rent his little bus truck he had uh, to go play our college frat parties. And he was going to Toby to check us out, which was pretty cool. Right. And not that we're, we're never against that. I'm always about it. If you can write a song that fits the choir and it's better than what we have, we're, we're all for the songwriter. We're going to cut the best song. Uh, no matter what, you know. So then Rock and the Beer Gut happens, and you guys are, are now on the map. What is it like to go from sort of relative obscurity to signing that record deal with Toby to then having this this crazy viral hit before even <laughs> viral was really a thing? You know, for us, we were a pretty big frat party band. We had built ourselves up in the SEC for, you know, two to three nights a week. We were making at least 3500 bucks. You know, just playing these trap party shows. But you got to take your equipment, you got to set it up, you got to deal with four hours straight of playing for a lot of drunk people. Sometimes they're really fun and sometimes they're fighting. So um, <laughs> yeah. we had a great time. I was, you know, I was still at that age, so I was enjoying the trap parties a lot. But uh, there's a middle period. So when you sign the record deal and you go out on the first tour, you're not getting paid to be on that tour. You know what I mean? They're paying your expenses. So yeah. they put a sentence with us, they paid for all of our food and anywhere we stayed and they took care of us, but we weren't making any extra money. Luckily me and butter both had publishing deals that we made 2,500 a month from each at the time. And we took 500 of our publishing deal from each one of us and gave to crystal, which gave her a thousand, you know, and then she had some other ways that she made money as well. But that time period when you're not able to go out and play shows and make money because you're on the Kobe tour was a little, I mean, we, I was like, we make the right decision, you know? And so I went and talked to Toby one day. I was like, man, I said, how much are we paid for these shows? He's like, well, you're, you're getting paid in exposure. And I was like, right. cool. I will, uh, I'll call National Electric Service and I'll tell them, hey, we got some Toby Keith exposure. <laughs> and he said, hey, man, he's like, that's what we all had to do. We all had to do this when we first come in the game. And, you know, it's a little different now because with 360 deals, they're just not, they don't give you sign bonuses and stuff. It don't really happen anymore, very rarely. Yep. So we didn't have a whole lot of uh, money. And honestly, I was broke for the whole first year. And he told me that day, he said, look, he said, one of these days something's going to get on radio. He goes, you're going to go from making no money to making more money than we thought possible. And our first single came out off the Hillbilly Hook. It was country rap before that was a thing. And... Uh, <laughs> It did not go over well. Nobody played it. <laughs> only person that played it, West Palm Beach, Florida, Mitch Mahan was the only person that added that song to, to a major radio station. <laughs> but it was also it was a trailer song for Beer for My Horses. So right. we were on ESPN. We were getting lots of exposure from that. And the song was quite a few downloads, which was great. So anyways, it came out. It kind of flopped. Didn't do anything. Then we put out a song called What Would You Say, which is our only ballad on the first record. Uh, what would you say is a song about the Sago Miners and Sago, I guess it's in West Virginia, um, but it's about the Sago Miners that got trapped in the mine, only one man alive. And basically, the song, what would you say if you knew your life down to those last couple of minutes and you had just a pen and paper to write one quick thing, what would you say? And uh, it was actually Brother's dad that came up with that idea. So we, put, we played that song at a um, backstage event for Toby to hear it. For Toby to cut it, because we were trying to pitch it. We were trying to be slick <laughs> and pitch it to Toby. Nice. So we get done, and that was the first time Toby and them had ever heard it. And Toby comes up to us and goes, guys, 
that's a, that's a hit song. That's a, that's a three week number one. That's a, that's a song of the year type song. And I'm like, heck yeah, bro, you need to cut it. <laughs> and he, goes, he said, we're going in the studio next week. As soon as we get back from the tour, we're going on the studio. We're cutting that song and putting it out on y'all. And we were like, no, <laughs> we were trying to get you to cut it so we can yeah. make some that mailbox money. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we cut the song, we put it out, and it actually got to number 42, 41, 42 on the chart. And had still got a bullet in the climbing, but it was a very slow climb. Didn't want to be a party band in the summer with a ballad on radio. So... They literally rushed and said, look, we're going to test beer gut. Because they were scared about beer gut. Like, look, people may not play this. Well, they put it out, and we had huge, like, everybody was loving it. All these radio stations like, yeah, we'll add it first week. We think this is great. This is fun. We love the guys, because we'd already met a lot of the radio stations. We love the guys, but this is a song we can actually play. So we debuted at number 39 on the charts with beer gut the day it came out. And we quickly raised all the way up to 31, 32. But it got a little slower, and we got to number 28. Well, when we got to 28, we had 92 reporters out of 126 reporters at the time. And there was one consultant that was running about 26 stations at the time. And I won't say his name because now he works for a record label. But (laughs) (laughs) there was one consultant for Clear Channel, and he flat out told us, which I appreciated his honesty. He flat out told us, I'm not going to put this on my stations. And they were like, we're like, what? He's like, it's testing through the roof. We're selling more downloads than the number one song in the country right now. He's like, not playing it. And it was all because his wife or girlfriend or whatever, at the time, she thought the song was despicable. She thought we shouldn't be telling people that it's okay to drink beer and have a beer gut and be overweight and all that other stuff. See, that's what I love uh, about the song, dude. It's like, it's okay to just be comfortable in your skin. Well, you know, people think of it as a beer gut, but really the song is telling you, rock what you got. Be proud of who you are. And if you want to make changes, if you want to make changes, that's cool too. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But wherever wherever you're at, and this is what I, I do a lot of motivation speaking now. And I tell people all the time, I was like, you can't hate yourself as you are if you want to become something better than what you are or something different than what you are. You have to love yourself enough to know that you're worth those changes. Because if you don't love yourself enough to know that you're worth those changes, then you're going to, whenever you get hardened and it gets a little little robot gets in the way, you're going to give up. If you hate yourself, you don't believe in yourself. So the song really is about just being proud of who you are. It's about a girl that said, you know what? I may be a little overweight. I'm a little muscle cop little beer gut showing, but you know what? I'm going to go out there. I'm going to dance. I'm going to have a good time. And I can tell you as a man, <laughs> I think that confidence is probably the sexiest part of any woman. Mm-hmm. You know, when a woman is like, you know, hey, me, like it or don't. You know, and I think people like Lizzo now are showing that. I think Adele kind of had a very quiet confidence, but also such a talented singer. But, you know, they're coming out saying, look, I'm me. Look at Luke Combs now. Luke Combs come out and said, I don't care what your mold is, you know. <laughs> It's funny because people say, Luke Combs is the biggest guy to ever make it in country music. I'm like, whoa, I weighed almost 500 pounds in my head. <laughs> let's, let's talk about this because I don't think there's ever been another one that was 500 pounds. You mentioned the the country rap thing, and I want to touch on this for a second because I remember vividly being with J.R. Schumann in Texas yeah. about a year before we opened for you guys in Michigan. And J.R., he was working at a little station in Victoria, Texas, and we were doing some stuff there. And so we were driving down to Corpus Christi to see Jack Ingram play, and uh, yeah. and that was the point where J.R. played Colt Ford for us for the first time. And it was just like, holy yeah. crap, where did this come from? So so from your perspective, as someone who was part of that sort of pioneering that movement, what was the experience like for you to sort of carry that torch for the rap in country music? So we never intended to be a rapping country band, but we love all music. We love all genres. So when we wrote Billy Hook, um, we wrote it, you know, because it was, it was fun and it had a cool vibe to it. Um, it was something that made people have a good time. Um, honestly, you know, Cowboy Detroit had already been out with kind of the hip-hop side of things, which was kind of like, if you think about late 80s, early 90s, kind of hip-hop mixed with country yep. kind of deal. And so we, we saw that as, hey, look, you know what? We can we can go into all these other genres. So we kind of brought rap to the game and said, look, let's go full on, like kind of, kind of almost country rap, you know? So we put the song out, and like I said, people loved it. It was used by the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. Um, it was used by, you know, um, lots of stuff, pro bull riding. Uh, PBR used it as their theme song for an entire year at the, at the uh, national finals, all that stuff. And actually, if you dive deep enough into the Colt Ford story, you'll find out that Trailer Choir actually was his first supporters in Nashville, and we introduced him to, to everybody. I went to a show 
at French Quarter Cafe where literally the only person in the crowd was me and my two roommates. And it was Colt Ford's first show in Nashville at the French Quarter. It was his band and him. And then in the crowd was only me and my two dude, my two guys. And <laughs> I watched this dude put on a show. I watched Colt put on a show that there was 25,000 people at. That's nuts. He didn't care. He went up there and he did exactly what he did. So, you know, me and Colt are, we're best buds. I mean, we're, we're very close. We've had a song. We were on his record label for a little while uh, after average, or after uh, we were on Show Dog. Um, but, it, you know, for me, I, even even guys that sort of George Line, they used to come see us at the Billy Block show. BK has personally told me, you know, we, we watched y'all. We knew that we could happen because of y'all. But, you know, they actually considered signing us over to uh, uh, Free Well, we were uh, talking about that, but we were already signed, and they wanted to do a record company, which is now called Round Here Records. And we were already signed to Average Joe's at the time. So, uh, but no, you know, I think, I think anytime you could be a trailblazer on something like that, mm-hmm. It's great. You know, you open up the door for so many other artists to be able to express their artistic nature, you know, and some people get mad about it. Some people are like, you ain't country. I'm like, I literally grew up on a farm, hauling hay, <laughs> working my butt off. I don't know, honestly, one person in country music, theoretically, that grew up more country than me. Not like right. people that like to hunt and fish more than I do. Hunting and fishing ain't I'm just selected to be in a country lifestyle. A lot of people like to hunt and fish and are not country, you know what I mean? Totally. But to me, country music is about, anytime you talk about music in general, what are we talking about in our songs? We're talking about, you know, and we were kind of the pioneers of tailgates and moonshine and cold beer and all that kind of stuff, but that's, that's how I grew up. And my town, you, in my town, the only thing there is to do is ride back roads, drop your tailgate down, sit there and talk to your people. There's no, there's not a long walk within 45 minutes of where I grew up. So, there's no, there's no movie theaters. There's no, there, it was a dry candy too. There was, you couldn't even go to a bar. So, you know, you only had drive around, drop the tailgate, sit by the river, sit in the strip pit, do that. So, and, and if you really think about it, most of America, the majority of America is small towns where there's not a mega ton of stuff to do. So these, I think that's why those songs resonate so well and do so well at radios because people want to hear them because all these kids that are riding around as an adult, I can't tell you the last time I listened to radio. You know, I mean, or, and that's, that might just be with the day and age that it is. But used to, I only listened to the radio. Now that I'm an adult, you know, it's like I, I put on podcasts and I put on motivational speeches and I, you know, I, I don't really listen to a megaton of music when I'm writing. I, most of the time when I'm doing music, it's because I'm writing it. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I, I think it was a great thing. And I think it led the way for a lot of these folks now that are outside the box. The Sam Hunt, Sam Hunt used to sleep on my couch. You know what I mean? I guess it's a dude that I helped get into the game, you know. So we, uh, we actually had a lot more to do with some of these people's careers than uh, most anybody will ever actually know or that will actually ever be admitted to. So, Well, and that's what I love about this podcast, where we can take as much time as we want to hear all of these backstories. I wouldn't have guessed that uh, <laughs> Sam Hunt slept on your couch. I do want to say I have a radio background, Vinny, and I feel as though re-releasing Rockin' the Beer Gut might be uh, really pertinent right now because of all of the COVID pounds people are putting on. <laughs> I just, I'm, it's we... relatable to me right now. <laughs> you know, You know what's so cool about Toby is Toby didn't make us sign a re-record clause. We literally could have went out because Beer Gut it gets it still gets. I mean, I think right now for this month it's got twenty five thousand streams on Spotify alone. That's over three million now, and that's I think that that dates back to uh, twenty fifteen. It'll say all time, but if you really look at it, yeah, that date dates back to twenty fifteen. So if you go all time, which I don't know when Spotify actually came on, but our our song, the height of our song was 2009, 2010. We were selling, I think if you look at 2015 till now, we've sold like 25,000 total downloads of the song. But we were selling about 15 to 16,000 downloads a week whenever the song was at its peak. So, you know, who knows what the total numbers are. I'm, I'm actually waiting to find out if we're, find out if we're, we're wanting to find out if we're uh, gold yet, which I think we are. I know in Canada we would be. So, yeah, um, for sure. But Toby didn't make us sign a re-record clause, so we could have, any time we wanted to, even in 2010 when the record deal was over, we could have re-recorded the song and put out a different version of it, and we could have made the money and had the master for that version of it. And we didn't do that because we respect Toby so much and how good he was to us. That's the reason we didn't. We've never re-recorded the song. We've always let it live like it is. you know. And we probably could have made... Quite a bit of money off the song if we re-recorded it and re-released it. And it might be something now to where 
it's long enough out that we might do that. Um, Cause we have recorded a reggae version of the song. That's like, <laughs> It's really, it's really cool. It's right. really cool. I want to talk about The Biggest Loser and the catalyst that got you to that point. So we mentioned earlier that you were pushing 500 pounds at the time. Yep. You had type 2 diabetes, right? I had type 2 diabetes. I had some liver failure and some kidney problems and a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Okay. So you're faced with this crisis health-wise. And then how does The Biggest Loser come into the picture? So Biggest Loser... <laughs> It was such an interesting thing. So I went out to uh, Los Angeles to audition for Dumb and Dumber 2 the first time they were going to make it. Come on! (laughs) So cool. Yeah. So their lawyer, the lawyer for the Fairley brothers, Cindy Fairley, is my, uh, she's my lawyer in Los Angeles, who I work with. And it's weird to say this, but we had opened for and I realized, like, no matter how much I accomplished in life, I wasn't proud of it. I only wanted to know what was going to happen next. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? So it would almost get me not not depressed because I'm not a very depressed person. I'm always up and jovial, but it's like I was always like on edge of what do I do? What do I do? What can I do more? And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I came over Nashville and got a record deal and have had some pretty decent success. I'm going to go to Los Angeles and I'm going to become a huge actor. I'm going to be the next Chris Harley. That's what I thought. And so I got out there, and we hung out, and uh, started kind of talking about what my role could be, me and Cindy. She's like, you're a character unlike anything I've ever seen. She's like, you literally are like Chris Farley, but so, you know, she's like, you are so likable, you're energetic, you're athletic, you're all these things. She goes, but, and I was like, oh, man, I don't like her, but. She's like, you are so much bigger than those people were. She's like, you're pushing 500 pounds. These people were 340 pounds, 320 pounds. She's like, you're 500 pounds. She's like, you know, at, at, at minimum, you need to lose about 200 pounds, you know? And because of, and I was like, well, I don't understand. Why can't I just be this big and be exactly who I am? And she goes, well, that works on a stage if you were going to be a character actor on a stage. But if you're going to be in a movie, you're so big that in the frame of the camera, it's not going to look right. You know what I mean? Like if you're standing there beside Tom Cruise, not that Tom would ever do a movie with me, but maybe <laughs> he would. <laughs> but if you're standing there beside Tom Cruise, he's, five foot five and weighs 120 pounds, mm-hmm. it's going to make him look like no, like nothing. You know, right. he, you're going to be wider than he is tall. And she said, so we need to get you down into that 250 to 300 pound range, more like Kevin James or Chris Farley or uh, even John Candy. I mean, she was like, there's, you know, she goes, unless you just want to be the comedy prop, like you're the fat guy that walks in in a Fido to be funny to everybody, for everybody to laugh at. She's like, you want them laughing at you, don't get me wrong. She's like, but you want them to laugh at you, but also believe in your character and let you become, you know, the next thing you're going to be. She just said, I just don't want that for you. She goes, I think that you are bigger than that. And she goes, and the funny way, you're bigger than the big, just being the big guy, you mm-hmm. know, is made fun of. And she said, I think you should go lose 100 pounds and, you know, come back and let's, let's talk about it, you know. So I was sitting there, I was like, there ain't no way I'm going to lose 200 pounds. I mean, who could do that? I said, I can't even lose 10 pounds, you know. <laughs> And so, sure enough, you know, sometimes we start making plans. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do it over the next year or two, and we'll see what happens. And, you know, because I don't want to not be big Vinny anymore. And uh, sure enough, I got home that night, and I started having a real bad pain in my leg. So it was Super Bowl Sunday. It was the Packers were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers. And at this point in time, uh, Aaron Rodgers had dated Hillary from uh, Lady Annabella for quite a while. Yep. So we had all made friends with, with Aaron because – he would be at the events and everything. So, you know, we was, we'd talk and we were buddies and all this stuff. So I text him, you know, that night. I was flying home on Super Bowl Sunday. I land. My then-girlfriend said, look, I think you need to go to the hospital and get your leg checked out. I was like, no, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'll do it, you know, and I got to make my cheese dip. And she was like, literally, the doctor, the, the girl that you're trying to get your new life started with, uh, Cindy Fairley telling you, you need to lose weight and you're going to go make cheese dip. I was like, yeah. I said, I'll start Monday. I'll start tomorrow. That's the famous words, right? I'll start tomorrow. So, you know, we always have plans and God has other plans. So I asked her if she would drive because my leg was hurting. We were supposed to go to the grocery store. She drove me straight to the hospital in the emergency room, turned off the car, got out and walked inside, took the keys with her. So she forced me to go to the hospital that day. I went to the hospital, got in there. They started looking at me. They, you know, the doctor came in. She's like, you don't have a hernia. She was like, yeah, I think you got some more smart after some tests. So she ran tests, come back and found out I had cellulitis in my leg. It was caused from having over 500 blood sugar 
uh, it was basically like if you thought about a bacteria like an ant, like they were building an ant hill in my leg, basically. Mm. And she goes, we're going to have to, and I said, so what do I, I just got to lose some weight or antibiotics? Or she goes, no, she was like, we're taking you in right now for emergency surgery. She goes, if you'd have waited two more days, we probably would have had to take your entire leg. It would turn into gangrene. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. So she, uh, you know, she did the surgery and everything. I was in there for six days. As I'm laying there on like day four or five, I get a call from an ex-girlfriend named Dana DeSilvio. It was on the first ever season of Biggest Loser. Now, she only weighed like 180 pounds. But back then, the first season of Biggest Loser, they thought heavy was like 210-pound guys and 180-pound girls. You know, those were overweight people. Right. So they literally basically just made fun of people and gave them challenges they couldn't do. So I hated the show after seeing her on it. But she called me. She said, Vinny. They're coming to audition people in Nashville for Biggest Loser. I think you should go. And I'm like, uh, probably never going to do that stupid show. So I hang up on her. <laughs> and I said to my girlfriend, who was, I said, listen, she goes, or she, first she said, who's that? And I said, that was Dana. She said, well, what did she want? Because, you know, they didn't like each other. They like each other now, I think. But anyway, she, I said, well, so I said, she's trying to talk me into going for Biggest Loser. I said, here I am, 500 and something, you know, about a 500 pounds, trying to figure out how I'm going to lose this weight so I can do my stuff. And I'm laying in this hospital bed. And I said, she's talking to me about some stupid reality TV show. And I looked over and I was getting like to look like you're an idiot look, you know. And so sure enough, she made me call her back. I called her back and the audition for the show and made it on there. And, and I learned very quickly that uh, the show was such a phenomenal tool. It saved my life. It gave me so much education. You know, it was just a, it was a beautiful thing. That, that thing right there kind of changed my life, changed the direction of where my life was going because my life was over. I mean, I was at the point where if I didn't lose the weight, they told me I wasn't going to make it to 30 years old. And I was 27, you know. Wow. That's a wake-up call, eh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I've been watching you your Instagram your now since since that point, and you have transformed yourself, not just physically, but you just you're you're a totally different dude now, and it just it's it inspires me. I'm the kind of guy who just always has that extra, you know, 15 pounds. And I struggle to lose that. And I watch you do what you're doing. And it's like, holy crap, man, how is this guy doing all of this stuff? And not just doing it, but keeping it off. And just the dedication that you've got, dude, is incredibly inspiring. And so I just want to commend you on everything that you've done um, because it's it's it inspires me as the guy who's got to lose that 15 pounds. And man, it's just, it's a real treat to watch you not just transform yourself, but become this new version of yourself. I think it's really, mm -hmm. really special. You know, it's something too, and I try to explain this to people, like, you know, just because you lose the weight doesn't mean it's over with. So when people are like, man, I got it. When I hit this goal weight, then I'll have some pizza. Or I'll do this. You can have pizza on the way down. You know what I mean? But there's no ending to your fitness journey. I mean, even if you're losing 15 pounds, that 15 pounds can come back in a week. Yep. You know, that, 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 you know, I lost 211 pounds on the duration of the show. I went from 453 um, all the way down to uh, 242 pounds. Um, so overall, I lost, shoot, man, I lost 260 something pounds. But I, uh, you know, my weight is, I've been up and down. I, I've, been, I've, I've been all the way back up to 325 pounds, and I've been all the way down to 238 pounds, you know. It all depends on what my goals are, but there's always going to be a struggle, you know, especially when you're addicted to food. I mean, I was a food addict, you know. I had to fight that every day, just like a guy that was on cocaine or any other kind of drug. You know, they were addicted to that because that was what made them feel better because that released the dopamine that, that fought off their their fears and their their their, uh, their worries and everything else. That's what I use food for. So whenever that happens, if you, um, you know, if you give into it, then you lose, you know. But if you mess up for a little bit and then you jump back on and start doing it, then you're actually winning. And the journey is forever, you know what I mean? Like right now I weigh about, I think the last time I weighed was like 309 pounds. So if I weigh 309 pounds, but now, you know, it's nine years later, so I was 242 at the end of the finale, which was a sweat out weight. I was really about 260 pounds. So I did a little sweat out the night before the weigh-in. <laughs> but um, I was about 260 pounds, so you say, you know, he's gained 40, or, you know, 40, 40, 50 pounds, whatever. But a megaton of what I've gained has been in muscle. Because sure. my goal has changed from, hey, how can I get skinny to, hey, how can I get stronger? How can yeah. I get to a 400-pound bench press and a 500-pound squat and a 700-pound deadlift? And how can I get to those things? Because I, I, I knew I didn't want to run marathons. I knew I'd, I'm, not, I'm not a runner. I wasn't built to be a runner. I mean, you look at me the way I'm built. I'm, I'm you know, five foot eleven, and I'm very thick, in, you know, chest and shoulders and arms and legs and everything. I'm just built. I'm a, I'm a lifter, you know. So that became my goal. And so even now, I mean, that's what I still do is, you know, I focus on those things. Now, 
I do, you know, I watch my weight. You know, if I get to a certain thing where I feel uncomfortable, I, I don't mind going and saying, hey, look, you know, I have to put the, the gaining muscle on pause for a little bit and I have to lean back down because, you know, you can, you can, whenever you're gaining muscle, you're most likely going to gain some fat. So I have to find that happy medium. And my, my best place for me that I feel the best at is about 275 pounds. That gets me down to where I'm about, you know, 19, 18, 19% body fat and still able to be pretty strong as well. So if somebody is looking to make changes in their own life, Vinny, where do you suggest they start? I think the first thing you got to pinpoint is whatever you're facing. So if you're, if you're like me and you were 200 pounds overweight, w- what made you get to that? You know what I mean? Because it didn't just happen because you're lazy, because I wasn't lazy at all. I was, I, was in, I was tons of fun, I guess you'd say. I was always <laughs> on the go, um, all, all that kind of stuff. So you have to pinpoint. Most of it comes from childhood uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, something went, something happened in your life, or maybe you was in an abusive relationship, and you know you got beat down mentally. And that's more for a lot of times women deal with that because um, they'll take the relationships most of the time a lot harder than men will. I'm not saying every situation is that way, but you know, a lot of times women will take a you know a bad relationship uh, a lot harder than a man will. Whereas a lot of times a man can you know they'll hide their fears behind sex and other things. You know, whereas women will actually you know let their emotions out and let it let it bother them. And so I think for for somebody that's starting, they have to figure out what was it caused, what caused you to have this food addiction, what caused you to have this drinking problem. You know, let's start there. Let's figure out how do we either forgive people. For me, I had to forgive my mom because I went through a lot of really hard stuff as a kid. My stepdad was, you know, former Navy SEAL who was in Vietnam, and he was like 20 years old, 17, 17 years older than my mom, and he was just not a good person, you know. And uh, I think maybe at some point in time in his life he was because we also had some good times too, but – he beat me and my brother so we could hardly walk, you know what I mean? And he beat my mom to where she was a bloody mess in the floor. And I think when you go through that stuff, for me, it was like, hey, if I eat more food, I'll get bigger than him, and he won't be able to hurt us anymore. Right. So I continued that into my life. I moved out. I've been on my own since I was 14 years old. I didn't live with my mom or my dad. I literally paid my own rent. I worked at Polk Trucking Company washing uh, the diesels every, every Saturday, and every Sunday I worked at Rusty Fish Hook washing, uh, washing the dishes. You know, I knew that I wanted better for my life, and I didn't know how to get it other than I have to make my own money, have to pay my own way. While I was on the show, we had a uh, the head doctor. He was Dr. Hogan, so I called him Hulk all the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, but he literally talked to me one day, and we had to take all these aptitude tests and all the same things you have to take to go in the military. We had to take all these tests, like four different tests you take before you can go on the show. And he came to me, and he, he said, hey, he goes, why don't you tell me why you don't like your mom? I was like, I love my mom. What are you talking about? And I, and I did. He goes, I know you love your mom, but you don't respect your mom. You don't like your mom. There's, there's things there. I'm like, well, how can you tell that? Or why, why would you say that? He said, well, the test shows that you love women and that you're respectful to women, but you don't respect women. I was like, I don't even know what you're saying. Like, I, I, I highly respect women. I love women. I was like, I'm, I'm always, I got three sisters. I, I mean, I'm, I'm against hurting any woman anyway. And he said, yeah. He said, that's fine. He said, but you don't trust them enough to let them into your life because you're afraid they'll leave you or they'll hurt you like most likely your mother did because um, that's what the test shows because the way you answered the question. Uh, I said, look, I love my mom. There's nothing wrong. So that was like week two. Well, week three, I was broke down, buddy. I mean, I was mm-hmm. I was physically broken down. We had NFL week. Uh, Tim Tebow came out and worked out with us. Drew Brees came out and worked out with us. It was a cool week. I got to meet a bunch of people that I looked up to that I thought were awesome. So that kind of broke down some of my walls. And then physically, I was broken down. So all of a sudden, you you don't have near as strong uh, of mental walls up. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm talking to the old vet, and all of a sudden, he starts talking to me about my childhood. He's like, man, he's like, what happened? You know, why do you think you got to this weight? And what do you think were the things that went wrong in your life? And all of a sudden, I just opened up and started crying. <laughs> this, they weren't filming at the time whenever we did this. They weren't even filming us. This is just me and him off camera talking. And I guess that's part of the reason that I felt like I could open up. And I opened up and I cried and I told him all the stuff I went through as a kid and all these things. And But you know, the doctor basically came to me then and said, look, he said, in order for you to keep your weight off, in order for you to, to make yourself better, you have to forgive your mom. And I looked at him and I said, why should I forgive my mom? I said, for all the stuff that she let me go through, for all the pain and all the torture and everything that happened to us when we were kids. And he looked at me, he said, well, why should God forgive us for all the pain and torture and agony that Jesus Christ went through on the cross? And, um, you know, he, he was a Christian, I'm a Christian, and I was like, you know what, I want to give you an answer, but I don't have a good answer to give you. 
And he goes, look, he goes, I'm not telling you you got to forgive her today. He's like, I'm just telling you that we have to start working towards that and, and figure out, you know. And he goes, and here's the way we do it. He said, you're going to look at yourself, and you're going to think about taking yourself out of your shoes, and let's talk about her life. You know, what was her, what was her story? How did she get to where she was? How, how was she hurt as a kid? And as we got to talking, you know, you realize my mom, you know, got pregnant. Her, her mom died giving birth to my aunt whenever she was three. Her dad left them, so they had none of that. They lived with my grandmother, who was the, probably the most saintly woman I ever met in my life. Um, but they lived with my granny, Belle, and she worked two jobs. They didn't have, a, you know, anybody else around, so she worked two jobs. So they were pretty much on their own, you know, at three and five and, you know, uh, newborn years old, you know. And they had, uh, they had to just make it and do what they could do, you know. So by 15, she got pregnant with my brother. By 18, she was pregnant with me. And by, by 19, she was pregnant with my sister. So by the age of 20 years old, she's raising three babies. You know what I mean? Wow. And so she ended up meeting Randy, who was my stepdad, who had money because he was a drug dealer. And she, he was able to put food in her belly and a roof over her head, which is the two most basic things that you need as a kid. You know what I mean? And so um, he put food in her belly and a roof over her head. And there was times he was good. I mean, he taught me how to hunt and fish and play ball and all those things. You know, he he wasn't always terrible but he was on drugs real bad so when he got on certain drugs and we got on his nerves you know he only knew one way to go with it and that was you know beat the hell out of us you know so i he said look he said you have to forgive her for those things he said because look she was also hurt and she was also in there and he said to me that night he said hurt people hurt people you know since you know and of course now there's a bunch of songs called that because i was going to write it but there's there's already so many that are so good i wouldn't even attempt it but um, he said, hurt people hurt people. And he's like, that's the way it is. He said, so a lot of times we have to take ourselves out of our shoes and put ourselves in those people's shoes and give them a chance to, to understand why they are the way they are, why they feel the way they do. Um, he said, and that's what you have to do for your mom. And he said, you have to, you know, you have to have forgiveness in your heart. He's like, because if you don't, he said, you know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison, waiting for it to kill the other person. He's like, so you need to forgive her and you need to, you need to let go of you know, a lot of that stuff. He said, it doesn't mean that you'll never think about it or that it'll never hit you again. He said, but you don't need to have the animosity in your heart towards her. You don't need to, um, you know, you don't need to hate her. I was like, I don't hate her. He's like, I know you don't hate her. He goes, but you're not getting me. He's like, you hate what happened and you hold her accountable for that. And then he goes, and it's not, I'm not saying it's not her fault because it is her fault. Um, but it's also the people's fault before her and the story that happened in her life. He's like, so, you know, Let's have some grace and forgive her, and then hopefully she can forgive herself and forgive the other people that you know that hurt her as well. So that's where we came to. And finally, you know, I don't know, it was probably about week seven or eight on the show, which is TV weeks. I don't know how many real weeks it was, but um, you know, I just had this like relief. I'm like, you know what? I understand that my mom went through a lot of hard stuff, and I understand that she kept food in her belly and a roof over her head, by whatever means necessary that meant. Even though she got the crap beat out of her every day and. You know, where else was she going to go? You know, what else was she going to do? So, uh, and then also I forgave Randy. I actually forgave Randy, my stepdad, before I forgave my mom. And I forgave him because I understand what he saw in Vietnam, what he went through. Um, it didn't seem like he was doing anything bad to us in his eyes. You know what I mean? So it doesn't make it right, you know, in any stretch of the imagination. But this dude's 70 years old now or 71 or 72, whatever he is. And I don't hate him. I pray and hope that he... Uh, finds God, and I think he has, and I, I pray that he has, um, you know, meaning to his life, and uh, I hope that he has peace, you know, and I think that's a hard place to be is, you know, it's hard to find that plot spot where you can forgive people that way and, and actually hope for their uh, for their well-being even after they've hurt you, but I think that's honestly what the world has to have now. I mean, we all have to come together and say, look, you may have hurt me or you may have hurt somebody else in my life, and, you know, I don't know the, all the reasons, but if I forgive you and I show you love and kindness, then you're a lot more likely to change your mind or be a better person than if I just continue to condemn you and, and hate you back. You know, I'm, I'm actually working on my first book right now. It's called I Love Me. And it's all about, you know, loving yourself enough to believe in yourself to do the things that you desire, you know, to go after the things that you want. Because I think so often in life we, we settle for money, you know. Yep. And uh, I think we could spend our whole lives doing something we hate and, and, it, and life could suck. You know, just because it makes us enough money. And I think if sometimes if you go after the things you truly love and you're passionate about, the money will follow, you know. Totally agree, man. And, hey, listen, when when that book's done, let us know about it so we can uh, we can help you get the word out, all right? Uh, absolutely, yes. 
it's a, it's a work in progress. I don't know how to write a book, but I knew how to write my story. So Right on, dude. Well, listen, before we let you go, we've got a segment here on the show. It's called Turn Us On, and this is where we get you to turn us on to something that you've discovered that you just can't live without. And this could be a television show. It could be an artist that you've discovered. Maybe it's a, a record that has blown your mind. Maybe a recipe that you and your wife have tried. Literally anything. <laughs> what is something that uh, we absolutely need to know about? Turn us on, Vinny. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's several things I can pick. For one, have some awesome kids because they'll change your life, but... You know, and to have kids, you have to have sex. So that's always a good thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think for me, I mean, if, if there's there's nothing in this world outside of my family that I would say I can't live without, except for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's something I would always tell people, um, you know, if you don't, if you have an empty place in your heart or you don't know what you, where you want to go in life or what you want to do, like, Take a chance, go to church, try, you know, try to go with an open mind and learn about God. I think that's a huge thing. As far as uh, material things, um, man, I, you know, I think that uh, for me, it's like, I mean, my workouts and stuff are huge to me. Uh, you know, I was thinking just the things I can't live without is, honestly, I love playing with my kids. I love being a dad. Um, I love being a husband. I love being a mentor to other people, you know, so I'm in the process and I told you I was creating a podcast myself. Um, it's going to be called overall you and it's a, it's just a life coaching thing basically. And then also overall you will be a system where you can uh, sign in to get tips and tricks and everything else on how to lose weight, keep it off. How do you build meal plans? I'm going to just basically give the education that I've been able to get so that other people can succeed. You know, because I think the biggest thing is the knowledge, is having the knowledge and realizing that not every single person is the same. Um, you know, what works for one person may not work for another. So it's like you have to find your path. Uh, what's going to keep you motivated? What's going to keep you eating right? What's going to help you reach those goals? Uh, and then obviously focus on the mental aspect of it, of how you have to uh, work every single day, not only on your physical health, but on your mental health. So. Hey, listen, thanks for taking the time. Big Vinny of the Trailer Choir, biggest loser, personal trainer, motivational speaker, author, future podcast Woo! host. Dude, there's so much to talk about. It's incredible. Yeah, so. absolutely. Big Vinny, thank you so much for speaking with us this afternoon and all the best. Hey, I appreciate y'all and I look forward to talking again one day. I'll let y'all know as soon as my podcast is ready. We're actually supposed to have a meeting on it tonight. So. Sounds great, brother. Wicked. Well, I'm following you on Instagram now, so. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks for the program. Thanks, dude. Talk to y'all soon. Okay, so this guy, when I said that he's got a lot of stories, we were not kidding about that. Wow, that guy has lived, and it is so amazing to see a guy with such entrepreneurial skills. Totally, and uh, I'm excited to get him back on the show in a couple of seasons from now, where we can talk about the craft of songwriting and the production style and, and all of that stuff, where we can get into the nitty-gritty of the craft of country music. But Vinny, man, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We're so lucky to have had you on the show. Let's talk socials. Let's do it. You know where to find us. We're at the show on the go. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, the show is dressed in unison blue for season three. So don't forget, if you want to make a donation, you can do that by simply opening up your text message app. Text the word unison to 45678 and follow the prompts from there. You're supporting a great cause. He's Scotty Kipfer. She's Amy Oust. Welcome to the show.